0: Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a vodka soda. What do you have, Dell?
1: I am drinking a pineapple white claw, and on this week's episode, we are going to look at the tragedy that was the Benoit family double murder and suicide. Over a three-day weekend in June, professional wrestler Chris Benoit murdered his wife and young son, and then killed himself. As a lifelong wrestling fan, I remember this case unfolding in real time and the circumstances around Benoit's death becoming clearer. Although we know what happened and who was responsible, mystery surrounds why it happened. Before we go into the details of that tragic weekend, we're going to give some background on Benoit and his family life. Christopher Michael Benoit was born on May 21st, 1967 to Michael and Margaret Benoit in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Growing up in Canada, he idolized fellow Canadian professional wrestler Bret Hart and dreamed of one day becoming a wrestler himself. Benoit trained at the Hart Family Dungeon under the guidance of Stu Hart he adopted a high-risk style of wrestling and focused on maintaining what he considered peak fitness. Benoit began his professional wrestling career in 1985 at Stampede Wrestling. He would often use a diving headbutt as a signature move. From 1986 to 1999, Benoit worked for New Japan Pro Wrestling, where he won his first major championship the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship. He briefly worked for World Championship Wrestling, or WCW, in 1994 before returning to the company in 1995 after a short stint at Extreme Championship Wrestling, or ECW. While at ECW at November 2, remember, Benoit accidentally broke another wrestler, Sabu's neck, within the opening seconds of their match. The injury came when Benoit threw Sabu with the intention that he take a face-first, quote-unquote, pancake bump, but Sabu attempted to turn mid-air, taking a backdrop bump instead. He did not achieve full rotation and landed almost directly on his neck. Paul Heyman, the head booker of ECW at the time, came up with the idea of continuing the quote-unquote Crippler moniker for Benoit. From that point until his departure from ECW, he was known as Crippler Benoit. WCW booker Kevin Sullivan was feuding with Brian Pillman. When Pillman abruptly left the company, Benoit was placed into his ongoing feud with Sullivan. This came to fruition through a disagreement between the two in a tag team match with the two reluctantly teaming with each other against the public enemy and Benoit being attacked by Sullivan at Slam this led to the two having violent confrontations at pay-per-views, which led Sullivan booking a few in which Benoit was having an affair with Sullivan's real-life wife, an orange screen valet Nancy, also known as Woman. Benoit and Nancy were forced to spend time together to make the affair look real. They had to hold hands in public and share hotel rooms. This orange screen relationship Developed into a real life affair off screen. As a result, Sullivan and Benoit had a heated backstage relationship at best and an undying hatred for each other at worst.
0: In October 1999 on Nitro in Kansas City, Missouri, Benoit wrestled Bret Hart as a tribute to Owen Hart, who had recently died to an equipment malfunction. Hart defeated Benoit by submission and the two received a standing ovation and an embrace from guest ring announcer Harley Race. Benoit grew unhappy working for WCW due to disagreements with management and to protest the promotion of Kevin Sullivan to head Booker. Benoit left the company the next day alongside his friends Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko, and Perry Saturn. Chris Benoit debuted for the World Wrestling Federation, or WWF, now known as World Wrestling Entertainment, or simply WWE, in 2000. He would achieve success as a part of tag teams in addition to a successful singles career. Chris and Nancy's son Daniel was born on February 25, 2000, and the couple married on November 23, 2000. This was Chris's second marriage and third child. On January 25, 2004, he won the Royal Rumble by last eliminating Big Show and thus earned a world title shot at WrestleMania 20. He became only the second WWE performer to win the Royal Rumble as the number one entrant along with Shawn Michaels. On March 14, 2004, at WrestleMania 20, Benoit won the World Heavyweight Championship by forcing Triple H to tap out to his signature submission move, the Crippler Crossface, in a highly acclaimed match. After the next three years, Benoit had various feuds and continued to be presented prominently on WWE programming. On June 19, 2007, Benoit wrestled his final match, defeating Elijah Burke. Benoit missed the weekend house shows, telling WWE officials that his wife and son were vomiting blood due to food poisoning. When he failed to show up for the pay-per-view, viewers were informed that he was unable to compete due to a quote-unquote family emergency. On Monday, June 25, 2007, WWE wrestlers and senior officials arrived in Corpus Christi for WWE Raw, which was to take place on that Monday night at the American Bank Center. As the early hours of the afternoon progressed and the show got closer to starting, WWE senior officials were increasingly concerned that they had not heard from Benoit in over 24 hours. Chavo Guerrero then showed WWE Vice President of Talent Relations John Laranitis, aka Johnny Ace, the text that he and Scott Armstrong had received from Nancy and Chris's cell phones in the early hours of Sunday. As some more time progressed without any contact from Benoit, WWE called the Fayetteville, Georgia police for a welfare check at the Benoit household. The officer discovered the bodies of Benoit, his wife Nancy, and their seven-year-old son Daniel at around 2.30 p.m. After discovering the bodies, the police notified WWE around 4.15 p.m., informing them that they had discovered three bodies at the Benoit home and that the house was now ruled as a quote-unquote major crime scene. After WWE chairman and CEO Vince McMahon had gathered the wrestlers together to tell them that Chris, Nancy, and Daniel had all died, WWE canceled the scheduled three-hour long live Raw show on June 25th and replaced the broadcast with a three-hour tribute to his life and career, featuring his past matches, segments from the Hard Knocks, the Chris Benoit story DVD, and comments from wrestlers and announcers.
1: It was not until the last hour of the tribute program that reports surfaced one after the other that Chris, Nancy, and Daniel had all died on different days over the weekend and that the police were not looking for any other suspects, working under the belief that Chris Benoit murdered his wife and son before killing himself. The next day, on Tuesday, June 26, 2007, After details of the murder-suicide became available, the company aired a recorded statement by McMahon before its ECW broadcast. Quote, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Last night on Monday Night Raw, the WWE presented a special tribute show recognizing the career of Chris Benoit. However, now some 26 hours later, the facts of this horrific tragedy are now apparent. Therefore, other than my comments, there will be no mention of Mr. Benoit's name tonight. On the contrary, tonight's show will be dedicated to everyone who has been affected by this terrible incident. This evening marks the first steps of the healing process. Tonight, WWE performers will do what they do better than anyone else in the world, entertain you, end quote. This was the final public statement made by the WWE about Chris Benoit. Once the details of Benoit's actions became apparent, WWE made the decision to remove nearly all mentions of Benoit from their website, future broadcasts, and all publications. The events of the double murder-suicide started on Friday, June 22, 2007, when Chris Benoit killed his wife, Nancy, in the bonus room of their house, which was being used as an office. According to the police report, her limbs were bound prior to her death, with her arms being restrained with coxal cables and her feet being duct taped together. A balled up combination of tube socks and tape were also found in the kitchen trash and appeared to be soaked in dried blood, which led police to believe that it was being used as a makeshift gag prior to her death. Her body was wrapped in a blanket. A copy of the Bible was left by her body. Injuries indicated that Benoit had pressed a knee into her back while pulling a cord around her neck causing strangulation. Toxicologists found alcohol in her body but were unable to determine whether it had been present before death or was a decomposition product. Decomposition also made it difficult to estimate pre-death levels of hydrocodone and amoprazone, found in quote-unquote therapeutic levels, in her body. In any case, her medical examiner's report saw no evidence that she was sedated as her son had been when he was killed. The following day, on June 23rd, Daniel was suffocated and killed in his bedroom, and a copy of the Bible was left by his body. Daniel had internal injuries to his throat area, showing no bruises. Daniel's exact time of death is unknown. The reports determined Daniel was sedated with Xanax and likely unconscious when he was killed. Daniel's body had also just started to show signs of decomposition, but was not as far along as his mother's body.
0: At about 3.30 p.m. on Saturday, June 23, 2007, fellow wrestler and close friend Chavo Guerrero received a voicemail message from Benoit's phone stating that both Nancy and Daniel had food poisoning and that he would be late for that night's house show in Beaumont, Texas. Guerrero called Benoit back and found that Benoit sounded tired and groggy as he confirmed everything that he had said in his voice message. Guerrero, who was, quote, concerned about Benoit's tone and demeanor, end quote, called him back 12 minutes later. Benoit did not answer the call, and Guerrero left a message asking Benoit to call back. At 3.44 p.m., Benoit called Guerrero back, stating that he had not answered the call because he was on the phone with Delta Airlines changing his flight. Benoit stated that he had a stressful day due to Nancy and Daniel, quote unquote, being sick from food poisoning. Guerrero then replied with, quote, all right, man, if you need to talk, I'm here for you. End quote. Benoit ended the conversation by saying, quote, Chavo, I love you. End quote. Another co-worker who often traveled with Benoit called him from outside the Houston airport. Benoit answered and told the co-worker that Nancy was vomiting blood and that Daniel was also vomiting. Benoit failed to show up for the house show in Beaumont and left a voicemail on Chavo Guerrero's cell phone that he would be on a flight that would arrive in Houston at 8 a.m. the following Sunday morning. During this time, Benoit also called and left a voicemail for an unknown friend. On Sunday, June 27, 2007, five text messages were sent to co-workers between 3.51 a.m. and 3.58 a.m. using both Chris and Nancy Benoit's cell phones. Four of them were the Benoit's address. The fifth said that the family's dogs were in the enclosed pool area and also noted that a garage-side door had been left open. Guerrero and referee Scott Armstrong were two of the recipients of these texts. Guerrero was woken up by the text and went back to sleep, telling himself that he was picking Benoit up at the Houston airport in a few hours. Benoit failed to show at the Houston airport on the flight that arrived at 8 a.m., Late Sunday morning, Benoit called WWE's Talent Relations office, stating that his son was vomiting and that he and Nancy were at the hospital with him. He also stated that he would be taking a later flight into Houston, where he was scheduled to face CM Punk for the vacant ECW World Championship at Vengeance Night of Champions. Benoit failed to appear for the Vengeance Night of Champions pay-per-view event in Houston on the night of Sunday, June 24th. Chris Benoit, according to District Attorney Ballard and the city sheriff, committed suicide by hanging on June 24th. He was 40 years old. A suicide note was not discovered during the initial investigation, but one was later discovered in a Bible that had been among Benoit's possessions that were sent to his first wife, Martina Benoit, and their children in Canada. Benoit's father, Michael, stated that Chris had left a, quote, handwritten notation in there saying, I'm preparing to leave this earth, end quote. A memorial for Nancy and Daniel took place in Daytona Beach, Florida, on July 14, 2007. Both were cremated and their ashes placed in starfish-shaped urns for Nancy's family. Chris was also cremated following a private memorial service in Alberta on August 6, 2007, but the fate of his ashes has not been publicly revealed. Three possible motives have been presented to explain Benoit's actions. The first was roid rage. WWE attorney Jerry McDevitt appeared on Live with Dan Abrams on July 17, 2007 and said that Benoit was prescribed testosterone as part of a treatment for testosterone replacement therapy, which McDevitt said was a common medical practice for people who had used steroids in the past and had suffered testicular damage as a result. Prior to the murder-suicide, Benoit had illegally been given medications not in compliance with WWE's talent wellness program in February 2006, including anandroline an anabolic steroid, and anastrozole, a breast cancer medication which is used by bodybuilders for its powerful anti-estrogenic effects. Benoit was found to have Xanax, hydrocodone, and an elevated level of testosterone caused by a synthetic form of the hormone in his system. The medical examiner attributed the testosterone level to Benoit possibly being treated for a deficiency caused by previous steroid abuse or
1: testicular inefficiency. The second possible motive was chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CT or some other form of brain damage. After the double murder-suicide, former wrestler Christopher Nowinski contacted Michael Benoit, Chris's father, suggesting that years of trauma to his son's brain may have led to his actions. Tests were conducted on Benoit's brain by Julian Bells, the head of neurosurgery at West Virginia University, and results show that, quote, Benoit's brain was so severely damaged that it resembled the brain of an 85 year old Alzheimer's patient. End quote. He was reported to have an advanced form of dementia, similar to the brains of four retired NFL players who had multiple concussions, sank into depression, and harmed themselves or others. Bells and his colleagues concluded that repeated concussions can lead to dementia which can contribute to severe behavioral problems. The last motive was a marital dispute. Nancy Benoit had filed for divorce in May 2003, allegedly after domestic abuse from Chris, but had withdrawn it in August 2003. In February 2008, the Atlantic Journal-Constitution, AJC, reported that Nancy may have suspected her husband was having an affair with a female WWE wrestler, and that they may have also argued over a life insurance policy. One thing before we get into our thoughts on this case that I wanted to mention that there are several conspiracies around this. One of the most prominent was that this was not a double murder-suicide But a triple murder, people have pointed the blame at Nancy's ex-husband, Kevin Sullivan. I didn't want to not mention it, but there is no basis to believe these conspiracies. And honestly, they're primarily used as a way to deflect from Chris Benoit's culpability in the death of his wife and son. So with that being said, Jenny, what are your thoughts on the Benoit family murders? This is
0: a case that I was somewhat familiar with, but I didn't know many details. It was kind of like, I remember this happening. It's such a sad case to see that three people, especially a child, lost their lives. I'm sure it was very shocking to everyone that knew him and to his fans as well. It seems like it really kind of like uprooted the wrestling community. I don't know too much about Chris Benoit. I did some of my own research before going into this, but he seemed like a really great person. His friends and family seemed really important to him. And a lot of people said in interviews that I saw that he was kind of like a gentle giant. It's really tragic. And this isn't the first or the last time we're going to be talking about something like this. But, you know, hearing a high profile person that this happened to them, it is really shocking. As a fan, Del, I'm curious to hear about your thoughts.
1: Yeah, this was one of the first times when I was, you know, actively watching wrestling and something like this happened. Because you hear about previous stories and there's sort of a detachment from that. But this was one of the first times when someone that I was a fan of, and I remember celebrating his wins. I remember getting excited for when he was coming back and you would see him. Me and my sister would put the crippler cross face on each other, you know, even though they say, don't try this at home. So I have all of these fond memories of this person, and that is juxtaposed with his horrendous actions and honestly when writing this and I have been thinking about doing this case for the podcast for a while but it just never seemed right and then finally I was just like let's just write it let's talk about it but one thing when it comes to my mindset on Chris Watt and what he did comes from Paul Heyman and he said something I completely agree with he said "Quote." You can admire his work all you want, but I'll give you my take on it since you want to keep yelling out my boy. Three people died in that house that night. I don't care about CTE. Three people died in that house that night. Only one person had a choice behind it. The other two didn't have a choice to die. So if that's your boy, fuck you, end quote. And honestly, I... As harsh as that sounds, that's how I feel. Because you can have as much connection with someone and admiration for someone, but once they take the life of their wife and child, I don't want to hear you defending them. I don't want to hear you making excuses for them. And quite frankly, none of their accomplishments matter to me anymore. They are a relic of the past that is better forgotten than constantly brought up. I do support WWE's decision to completely erase him from all mention. They have gone above and beyond to make sure that his image is not seen. So, for example, if they're playing back a match in tape of someone else's accomplishments, They'll blur his face out or they'll have camera angles where you can't see his face on the WWE Network overseas or on Peacock in the United States. You can't search directly for his matches. And even if you go to the website, because he is in the history books uh, for some of his accomplishments, you'll just see his name written there with no real descriptions. And even if you look at the matches that he was involved in, they take his name out and just list the other participants. I think that him becoming basically persona non grata is the best thing that the wrestling community could have done to recognize how heinous his action was and how it is unacceptable and no matter what level of talent you have, there is a line that you can't cross. And for me, murder definitely uh, is involved in that.
0: I've never heard of a organization or like entertainment programming really going that far in erasing someone's bad behavior or crime. So that's really interesting to hear from me. And it's interesting you brought that up. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about CTE in a minute. But in one of the videos I saw, someone commented, and they kind of had the opposite opinion, or they did have the opposite opinion of Udell. They said they thought it was a disgrace that he was erased when it was CTE that you know, was caused or brought on by like the WWE. And I think that's kind of interesting, but I mean, I think you're right when it comes down to it, someone did kill two people. And I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a second, but it was his decision solely.
1: Right. And I think that this is definitely something that divides the wrestling community when it comes to which side you're on. and what level of culpability you place in the hands of WWE. For me, they could not prevent this from happening, and that erases their culpability. You can't say that someone is responsible for the actions of someone else when that person voluntarily they wanted to do in the ring. WWE didn't make Chris Benoit do a high-risk style of wrestling. He was doing that prior to WWE and continued that style. Now, you can have a wider conversation on what sports organizations and physical entertainment organizations need to do to make sure that you are reducing the occurrence of CTE. But again, anything that tries to decrease Benoit. Culpability and his actions are not something that I can agree with. Which motive do you find most plausible? I kind of wonder if it's
0: a combination of CTE and roid rage, maybe with some depression from, or I think we're going to talk about this, the loss of his friend, but also Nancy filing for a divorce. At first, I was thinking maybe more of the CTE, but I know in a lot of CTE cases that. I think, I mean, I guess one CTE case can't speak for all of them, but with a lot of football players, they do end up taking their own lives and dying by suicide rather than kind of bringing other people down with them. And I don't know, the fact that Nancy was bound doesn't sit right with me. And Chris's ex-wife had said that when he took steroids, it did make him aggressive. And I heard that Nancy was also reporting that, that he was getting aggressive. So maybe it was the roid rage. It obviously seems like a very premeditated crime. So I don't know. I kind of lean toward like a little bit of everything. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think that it was a combination of factors that led to it happening. But I do think that it's important to highlight the fact that there were things done that were not a result of paranoia or, you know, anything like that. Like you said, Nancy was bound and gagged. There was a cleanup effort that happened. There was a cover-up effort that happened with messaging uh, his work and his friends about lies, basically, because he had killed them. They weren't sick. And he continued that lie. He lied about what he was planning on doing when it came to uh, getting on the plane. So I don't know how you really line those two up with saying that he was just so out of his mind, he couldn't think about it, as what usually happens with CTE cases with the evidence. You also have the fact that Daniel was sedated, which is another premeditated action. I do think that their domestic situation led to what ultimately happened, I think that the start of their relationship was toxic and it just continued to be toxic throughout. And unfortunately, as a result of that, you had the loss of not only her life, but her child's life as well. Chris Benoit joined an unfortunate group of wrestlers who have died prematurely, most before the age of 50. According to a 2014 study by Eastern Michigan University examining professional wrestlers who were active between 1985 and 2011, mortality rates for professional wrestlers were up to 2.9 times greater than that for men in the wider United States population. Experts suggest that a combination of the physical nature of the business, no off-season, and potentially high workload, with some wrestlers fighting more than 100 and 200 matches per year, along with the drug culture in wrestling during the 1970s, 1980s, and early 1990s, contribute to high mortality rates among wrestlers. Many promotions employ performers as quote-unquote independent contractors and do not offer company-sponsored group health insurance coverage in most circumstances. This is said to have a casual connection to their longevity, morbidity, and mortality. In a follow-up blog by Benjamin Morris, he compared the WWE's death rate to that of the NFL and other U.S.-based pro leagues using ESPN's Athlete Bio Database, and that included baseball, basketball, and hockey the sample athletes must have completed at least five seasons. The mortality rate for professional wrestlers were significantly higher than the pro sports athletes. He found that of those pro wrestlers aged 50 to 55 years old in 2010, 20% of them had died. In comparison, fewer than 5% of athletes from pro sports in the same age group had died. Their deaths have been caused by various things, including overdoses, murders, suicides, and in-ring accidents. Jenny, what are your thoughts on the disturbing phenomenon of wrestlers dying prematurely?
0: It's really sad and shocking. It's not something I was really aware of. I know we see something similar with the NFL, but I mean, it makes sense. When you're an athlete, particularly a wrestler, you're wearing your body down as a profession and for entertainment. And that's really upsetting to hear about the health insurance. And I will say too, I mean, even within this case, we talked about one other person that died from equipment malfunction. And we're about to talk about another friend of Benoit's that died. There really is a lot of deaths and it's... I don't know. I mean, I feel like there needs to be some kind of like investigation or something into all of this. I mean, we do in the general entertainment industry, you see performers and actors die young. Like we were talking about drugs, they do tend to have more access to drugs and things that can hurt you. But those statistics are really, really crazy. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. It just Makes you sad because you're like, you watch this person and you think you're going to see them have this long career and then see them off into retirement. And then it seems like one thing happens and everything comes spiraling down on them. One person that I'm thinking about is a wrestler known as Tess or Andrew Martin. And he's someone that was employed by the WWE. He had a substance abuse problem. And unfortunately, he had an accidental overdose and passed away. And his story is not unique. You have these people that, despite the success that they found, despite the money that they have, It's something with wrestlers where there is this disconnect between having the potential to get help and actually getting the help that you need. And you don't really see it with other sports athletes. I definitely think it's closer to what you see in musicians and the so-called 27 clubs in a lot of ways when it comes to wrestlers. It would take us all day to list the wrestlers that have prematurely passed away, but I think another one that I wanted to highlight is the person that was extremely close to Chris Van as we move into the next section on survivor's guilt, and that was Eddie Guerrero, who passed away from heart disease and he was 38 years old when he passed away and again acute heart failure in a 38 year old like that is insane to think about like a lot of these things that are killing these wrestlers are not things that you associate with people under the age of 50 it's things you associate with people that are 80 and 90 years old There have been different types of investigations. You had the steroid trials, you had other things that looked at the wellness policy. But until there's a real kind of grappling within the wrestling community over all the dysfunctions that happen within it, I don't know if this trend is really going to change. There is some promise with a lot of younger wrestlers taking better care of themselves and there being a lower insistence on steroid use and other things that are harmful. But again, you have people like Eddie Guerrero and others who were wrestling during a time where it was expected that you look and act a certain way. Chris experienced
0: survivor's guilt after the death of his close friend, Eddie Guerrero. This loss left Chris broken and lost. Benoit's friends and loved ones delved into how he was pushed over the edge by the loss of his quote-unquote brother. Chris Jericho, close friend of both Guerrero and Benoit, said Eddie's death broke Benoit to his core. When they saw each other at the funeral, Jericho recalled getting a hug from Benoit that was quote, the most desperate, saddest I'm hanging on for my dear life hug that you could ever get, end quote. Survivor guilt or survivor's guilt, also called survivor syndrome or survivor's syndrome and survivor disorder or survivor's disorder, is a mental condition that occurs when a person believes they have done something wrong by surviving a traumatic or tragic event that others could not. When the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders 4, otherwise known as the DSM 4, was published, survivor guilt was removed as a recognized specific diagnosis and refined as a significant symptom of post traumatic stress disorder. Survivor guilt was first identified during the 1960s. Several therapists recognized similar, if not identical, conditions among Holocaust survivors. Similar signs and symptoms have been recognized in survivors of traumatic situations, including combat, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, air crashes, and wide-ranging job
1: layoffs. There are three types of survivor's guilt. First, there is guilt about staying alive while others died. Second, there is guilt about the things they failed to do. These people often suffer post-traumatic intrusions as they relive the events again and again. And the third was the feeling of guilt about what they did do, such as scrambling over others to escape. These people usually want to avoid thinking about the catastrophe. They didn't want to be reminded of what really happened. One of the most famous examples of survivor guilt is Waylon Jennings. Jennings was a guitarist for Buddy Holly's band and initially had a seat on the ill-fated aircraft on February 3rd, 1959, or quote-unquote, the day the music died. But Jennings gave up his seat to the sick J.P. Big Bopper Richardson, only to learn of the plane crash. When Holly learned that Jennings was not going to fly, he said, quote, well, I hope your old bus freezes up, end quote. Jennings responded, quote, well, I hope your old plane crashes, end quote. This exchange of words, though made in just at the time, haunted Jennings for the rest of his life. Jenny, what are your thoughts on survivor's guilt?
0: It's a very real thing, and I know some people that have experienced it. I didn't know that it was found, I guess first found or talked about with survivors of the Holocaust. I thought that was pretty interesting. And I think it does make more sense as a symptom of PTSD rather than its own like diagnosis itself. And I think a lot of people have experienced it in some way. To me, it doesn't always have to be traumatic, a traumatic thing. It can be like a, hey, I made my life better and the people I grew up with didn't get out of that. Well, I had the chance. I think it can be like anything from that to, like we said, surviving a natural disaster or anything along those lines. And I understand why stuff like that does go through people's minds. We can't make sense of tragedies and trauma, but we try our best to. And part of that is thinking, well, what made me so special that I got through that and they didn't? Like I said, just so many questions arise from trauma and death that our minds just can't comprehend and we have to kind of like put a puzzle together. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Honestly, when it comes to survivor's guilt, it's one of those things that is really sad because how do you help the person? Because you don't want to invalidate their feelings, but you also want to let them know that they were either not responsible for what happened or they did the best that they could do in that situation. And when you were bringing up the example of people that have left a certain neighborhood and done well for themselves, they feel bad about the people that didn't do it. It reminds me of imposter syndrome a little bit as well, thinking about, why did I get this? Do I really belong? And I feel like survivor's guilt takes that one step further when people are questioning, you know, why am I alive? Like you said, what's so special about me that I was able to survive this. I think that especially comes up when you have very few survivors and a lot of casualties. There is a show on Netflix that was focused on that. And one of the participants was saying how she, her first instinct was just to freeze. And to kind of blend in with everyone else, not realizing she was the only one alive. And that was her mindset for the first few days before her survival instinct sort of kicked in and she knew she had to get to a better spot, get out of the elements. I think that when it comes to survivor guilt, whether it is tied to death or just seeing a bunch of people lose their jobs or not get the access to stuff. I think that we just need to be cautious of what we say and, you know, sympathetic, even if we've never experienced it ourselves. Like you said, it's definitely a real thing and definitely something that those that work in grief and trauma are probably the best equipped to handle. So the last thing we're going to dive into is CTE, and CTE was one of the motives that was proposed to have caused the Benoit family tragedy. CTE is a progressive brain condition that's thought to be caused by repeated blows to the head and repeated episodes of concussions. The symptoms of CTE varies between individuals, but tend to be similar to those of other types of brain conditions, particularly Alzheimer's disease. CTE usually begins gradually several years after receiving repetitive blows to the head or repeated concussions. Typical symptoms of CTE include short-term memory loss, such as asking the same question several times, or having difficulty remembering names or phone numbers. Changes in moods, such as frequent mood swings, depression, and feeling increasingly anxious, frustrated, or agitated. Increasing confusion and disorientation, for example, getting lost. Wandering or not knowing what time of the day it is. Difficulty thinking, such as finding it hard to make decisions. Violent outbursts, increased frustration, again, mood swings and lack of interest in people and things that previously the person cared about. As the condition progresses, further symptoms may include slurred speech, significant memory problems, Parkinsonism, which is the typical symptoms of Parkinson's disease, including tremors, slow movement, and muscle stiffness, as well as difficulty eating or swallowing, although this is rare.
0: Although the exact causes are not fully understood, certain groups of people are believed to be most at risk. This includes athletes with a history of repetitive mild traumatic brain injury, particularly in contact sports such as boxing or martial arts, American football, football perhaps related to repeatedly uh, heading the ball, and rugby, military veterans with a history of repeated head trauma such as blast injuries, people with a history of repeated head injuries including self-injury, victims of recurrent assault, or poorly controlled epilepsy that results in repeated head trauma. There's currently no test to diagnose CTE. A diagnosis is based on a history of participating in contact sports plus the symptoms and clinical features. This means the only way of confirming CTE is by carrying out a post-mortem after a person with a condition dies. Research is ongoing to determine whether other brain imaging techniques will be able to help diagnose CTE in the future. As with many other types of dementia, treatment for CTE is based around supportive treatments. Unfortunately, a 2009 analysis of 51 people who experience CTE found the average lifespan of those with the disease is just 51 years old.
1: Do you think that we'll be able to find a cure or at least some type of treatment for CTE? I hope so, but it's
0: so hard because we don't know for sure until someone dies. I would say I think I may be more confident in like brain imaging to find for sure if someone has CTE coming first, but I feel like we're kind of in a, maybe not a good place with CTE, but we know a lot more about it now than we did like 20 years ago. Like nobody was talking about CTE then, but if we do know a lot of the symptoms, so hopefully some treatment could help or we could learn some type of treatment. This definitely isn't an easy solve, but I would hope that we could find more, but I mean, the doctor that found out that CTE was even a thing was very suppressed by the NFL. I don't know if any other like sporting or like entertainment industries also had a hand in keeping his findings suppressed, but I don't know if this uphill battle is still going on. Like I said, more people are talking about it now, so hopefully it's not, but we have a long way to go. But I think, I can see us getting the imaging techniques first and so maybe some type of Alzheimer's treatment. I feel like I've heard that there's more Parkinson treatment coming out, that there's been more advancements with that. So who knows, maybe something we could find something based off those findings. What do you think?
1: I agree with you. I think that the first step that we need to take is we need to be able to diagnose an individual with CTE while they're still alive. Because while in terms of research, it's good to know whether someone who has passed had CTE, it doesn't do any good for those that are living with the condition. So hopefully that is something that can be worked out fairly soon because You do have a lot of individuals that are participating in sports that have a high occurrence of concussions, thus, you know, a higher prevalence of CTE. I think that when it comes to treatments or a cure, I think it's more likely that they're going to be able to use what's found for Parkinson's or Alzheimer's and use those medications to also treat CTE because the conditions are so similar. I think that there has been some change in professional sports when it comes to just the awareness of concussions and the damage that it can cause. But we have a long way to go in order for these leagues and other professional teams to really accept responsibility for the role that they may or may not play, and just preserving the safety of the individuals that work for them.
0: That sounds good to me. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Benoit family murders. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. As always, stay safe.